0: Welcome to 5 Minutes to Chaos, the podcast that dives deep into the world of chaotic emergencies and complex crisis management. In each episode, we'll engage with emergency managers and crisis leaders to explore the challenges that arise in times of crisis and the strategies they employ to navigate through them. From natural disasters to technical failures to human-caused events, we'll examine real-life scenarios that put crisis managers to the test. Join us as we uncover the lessons learned from past emergencies and gain insight into the complexities of crisis management. With 5 Minutes to Chaos, you'll be better prepared to face the unexpected when it strikes. Let's dive in. Everybody, Steve Kerr here, your host to Five Minutes to Chaos, an unrehearsed, unscripted podcast with the goal of promoting crisis management through the raw experiences and observations of emergency managers, crisis leaders, and incident commanders that have led their teams through complex and challenging situations. I have a special guest with us today. Uh, somebody that shares the passion that I do for the emergency management domain. He has served in a number of emergency management capacities um, in Florida and in the private sector. And he also has a medical background. Bill Johnson, welcome to the podcast. Tell us about yourself.
1: Thanks, Steve. Uh, first of all, a pleasure to be here. I really appreciate the invite. Uh, always love to meet with you and chat with you. Uh, Interestingly, my education is in nursing. I have both of my degrees from the University of Wisconsin, go Badgers. My practice was primarily in critical and critical care and trauma, which was a good preparation for my eventual move into emergency management. You know, nursing, we do, you know, that assess, analyze, plan, implement, evaluate, re-strategize and repeat. And so that was, I think, a good uh, theoretical background or preparation for my um, eventual move into emergency management. In 1991, I worked as the Assistant Director of Miami-Dade County's Office of Trauma Services, managing the Trauma System Quality Improvement Program. In 1995, the trauma system was combined with the Miami-Dade Office of Emergency Management because of budgetary and grant uh, reduction strategies So overnight, I was promoted to the Assistant Director of Emergency Management, kind of getting on-the-job training. Uh, In 2005, I did a short stint in the private sector doing emergency management consulting, followed by a brief stint as Assistant Director of Broward County's Emergency Management Program. And in 2010, I accepted the director position of Palm Beach County Division of Emergency Management. I retired in early 2021. I have approximately 20 years as a clinical nurse, I still am licensed, and over 26 years of emergency management. I still have two side hustles that, uh, just a little bit part-time, I work for uh, HHS, ASPR, on their uh, incident management team as a public health advisor, and I work for Early Alert as a uh, part-time, on-call, more or less, uh, consultant and then i also do some volunteering and uh, happily retire so how's that
0: you're the most happily unretired guy i've ever met you got <laughs> a lot you got a lot going on you know, um, I have an EMS background. That, that's the that's my foundation, and I'm not surprised to see somebody uh, such as you. You were also a paramedic, if I as I recall. That is correct, uh, right? So uh, I I I was I've been a paramedic since 1982. That dates myself, and I might as well share that. Um, and I'm not surprised to see um, that. Um, connective tissue between EMS, medical, nursing, and, and emergency management. I see that a lot. Yeah. Um, uh, episode, uh, was it episode one, I think, Rich Rotans, FDNY captain, rescue, safety division, uh that ultimately became Deputy Commissioner OEM, New York City and Director of Emergency Management, Nassau County, I was a nurse. And yep. uh, and it still is. And I, I think uh, I, I think that that connection, that human connection, and like you said, you the the way that you're um, trained to make an assessment of a patient and come up with uh, plausible diagnostic situations a differential diagnosis well you kind of got to do the same in a crisis situation right i really i really like the way you said that
1: and i think you know the other thing is is that um you know emergency management is about compassion for humanity and uh, you know nursing is is as well And uh, I think they're very two similar um, processes. And, you know, some of my nursing colleagues kind of chided me a little bit about how I left nursing, but I would disagree. I think I practiced nursing every day that I was in emergency management. We have, you know, I advocated for my special needs population day in and day out. I advocated for the underserved and the the medically challenged people in my community. Uh, uh, there were various ways that every day that we uh, that as that I use my nursing skills. Uh, I may not have been starting art lines like I used to, but um, definitely used um, many of my talents and skills as a nurse in my emergency management um, skills skill set every day.
0: I think the takeaway there for emergency managers, especially those entering the field, is that emergency management, before anything else, is a people-first organization. And people, and it, what I don't care if you're an emergency manager in the community, at the state, in a private sector organization, critical infrastructure—it's all about people. If you're if you're working for uh, a, an organization such as healthcare, or public health—that's that, that's crystal clear. But um, for those breaking into the business I like to give some tips and I think making sure that you understand you know when we started OEM New York City OEM in in the mid 90s uh uh Jerry Hower was was the uh was the first director and he had a few basic rules not unlike the rules you have that Jeff Goldberg spoke about in, in episode 2 like does it pass the uh the Palm Beach post uh, sniff test or something like that uh, there there were a couple rules and, and w- one of the rules was um, people before infrastructure, and get it done. And You know, I mean, that's it. You know, knowing who to call, you know, that kind of thing. Keep the Rolodex up and, well, you... You and I are both old enough to know what a Rolodex is. Yeah. And uh, (laughs) we talk about that a lot on this show because I believe in Rolodex crisis management, you know, or cell phone management, Uh, knowing who to pick up uh, the phone and knowing who to call, where to get information, where to get stuff, and where to provide stuff. So yeah uh so uh, i live in palm beach county and uh i you know i pass the eoc frequently over there on on gun club gun club road and i think of all the all the friends that i have that have you know come through there that have had that have grown such as yourself jeff goldberg uh, have had great careers from there being in palm beach county just where it's located in the tropics with the threats and risks that that uh this county is confronted with and 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 that's changing the demographic is changing right west palm beach is changing it's Mm -hmm. becoming extremely urban we have the this new rail system going through the county bright line which uh is is uh is a a could is not not a problem but you know could be a safety issue there are some rail accidents that are occurring so so good stuff so the one thing you didn't mention and i want to give you a plug is the great work that you do uh in the leadership role you have in the annual governor her governor's hurricane conference here in florida uh it's it's an extraordinary event if memory serves, it's it's here in West Palm Beach every year, and there were twenty four hundred people, I believe, in attendance. And I was fortunate enough to uh, to be at the conference and participate this year with uh, with you all, and uh, it made some new friends. Met the Wagner's, right? You spoke about was it Early Alert? Uh, my new my you know my new new friends in emergency management. Oh, uh, is it William? We have uh, William we have some as you as you do you we we have the same like time period on our resume and right. we were able to just kind of you know joke about you know talk about some of the s- s- things that have gone on in the business in the industry over this so tell us about the conference a little bit and what your role is only because I think it's so important
1: well I've been with a conference for i have been dating myself now since the early 2000s I think I think I've been attending the conference since the 1990s but um the uh it, it's I'm it's the nation's largest conference on tropical uh storms and for emergency preparedness people uh, emergency managers public safety first responders I think it's the thing that we try—I've been on the uh, on the board of directors. I've been chair of the program committee for many years. I'm still on the program committee. I guess they—I just can't get off of it. Um, but I really enjoy my work with it because I think the the essence of the of the governor's hurricane conference is to provide uh, real, usable, and economical training for uh, you know first responders and emergency managers. And I think we work every year uh, to try to make sure that we improve upon our prior years uh, successes, so uh, we are trying to make every year better than the the last so we've been in uh, West Palm Beach now for five years, I believe our contracts um, put us here for another three years. Um, so it's been a, it's a, it's a really good conference. I think we, we, uh, have seen again about 24, 2,500 people here this year. Uh, we, we have a, a 25 person, all volunteer program committee, and we spend about nine months preparing the, uh, the, the program. We have over 360 hours of training, Uh, in training sessions as well as workshops and then of course as you saw in the middle of the week Wednesday is our general session uh, and where we bring in nationally known speakers Um, and so we really just again try to give a good perspective on uh, expertise since Florida is has the highest risk of hurricane strikes we're a a peninsula out in the middle of the caribbean and the or the gulf and the caribbean and the atlantic we um you know have a high risk so we have a lot of experience so we hope to share that with um many people we we saw people from 47 of the 49 states in the continental us so we're um you know, we again, I think we we're not just a Florida conference, although um, we do try to since we do things fairly decently here in Florida, I think we uh, we 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 don't mind every once in a while talking a little bit about what it is that we do.
0: I think you should. And, uh, you know, we were lamenting uh, you and I uh, about the cost of. Uh, industry, industry conferences before uh, the cost of the governor's hurricane conference is is nominal and i i think it's a real value but it's also value add i, th- I think yep. you get an, an enormous value um it's it's at the convention center here in the county. Uh, I have no reason to plug this other than I think it's great. and I you know and because he, c- because of your leadership role and there's some other friends like Jeff Goldberg and I think it's it's so anybody that's considering coming to the to the to the jewel of the East Coast of Florida right here in West Palm Beach because it, it is in it is in downtown West Palm. Uh, I would certainly uh, encourage that. So we're here to talk about crises. And uh, I, I know that you have been involved in any number of hurricanes, but you also have experience, uh, uh, much broader experience being in, in the business. So um, what's our crisis today and what were the challenges?
1: So when you asked me to come and talk to you today, I thought, oh, gosh, which I wish i talk about again. You know, I'm, I'm a little bit old Uh, So I've got a bit to pick from. Uh, As you saw from my bio, I could talk all day about disasters. In fact, when I first joined emergency management in August of 1995, um, just Google the 1995 parade of storms. And when we walked into the Emergency Management Operations Center, um, uh, again, as as a trauma agency person, I had no clue about emergency management. But here I was faced with uh, the parade of storms, which was Jerry, Iris, Umberto, Karen, and Lewis, uh, all lined up in the Atlantic. Um, We had, we were faced with a bunch of other uh, chaos. Uh, We had value jet flight number 592 that crashed into the Everglades in 1996. We had fine air flight. It crashed a year later at the end of the runway at miami international airport we had the igloo moon which was a chemical tanker carrying 6500 metric tons of butadiene that ran aground in biscayne national park in 1996 we had y2k we can't forget that in 2000 then again a year later in new york city uh, i was called along with several other folks in my crew to go to the eoc uh, after the 9-11 attack on America, which was, again, was a life-changing moment for myself. We had countless, numerous uh, mutual aid, hurricane activations in Florida, um, tornadoes, flooding events. Uh, I was on a fusion center team uh, with Palm Beach Sheriff's Office and Secret Service throughout the year from 2020 for all of the presidential activities in Palm Beach County. Uh, we had COVID-19, so again, uh, which one do I talk about?
0: Yeah, I hadn't really thought about presidential activities. Of, of course, uh, our ex-president lives in the county. You know, I, I pass Mar-a-Lago almost, not daily, but at least two, three times a week in my travels. And I hadn't considered the uh, the emergency management role in that, Um
1: yeah, we're privileged here in Palm Beach County in that you know and it really is. I think you've probably learned that emergency management is definitely a team sport. And then if you don't play as a it as, as a team sport, you're not going to do very well. And here in Palm Beach County, we really do play emergency management as a team sport. So um I you know, I was privileged to and and honored to be part of. You know the Fusion Center process with that, yeah. so it was it was definitely an eye opening experience for us.
0: I like the way you say that because I feel the same way about my service during uh, my time in New York City. The opportunity to serve the the greatest city in the world, the, uh, the public that I love, that I had been serving for years as a, a paramedic in the fire department. Uh, I, I, I we think a lot, and I like that. Yeah. Value, Jet. Value yes. Jet is on Let's my. Let's talk about that no pun intended but value jet just got on my radar uh i i remember value jet which ended up becoming another airline was acquired by southwest i'd have to think about the name uh they there was a crash in the everglades and it had something to do with an oxygen generator take it away
1: yeah so you know the the name of this program is five minutes to chaos and um I think this, this incident that I have is one that really definitely um, talks about, you know, will definitely address that because um, this was definitely five minutes to chaos. It may have been a little bit longer to chaos, but it definitely was five minutes to chaos. So let me just set the s- stage for you a little bit. So ValueJet Flight 592 took off from Miami International en route to Atlanta. And ValueJet back in 1996 was kind of the precursor to... You know, it was one of those low, it was a budget airline kind of thing. So it was kind of the precursor to the spirits and that kind of stuff. Uh, It was kind of a no frills. um, But, you know, again, it had a good reputation. Um, Anyway, it took off on Saturday, May 11th at 1996 with 110 souls on board, five crew, 105 passengers. Recall that this was a Saturday. It was before Mother's Day. So most people, including myself and all of our crew, were pretty much relaxing on a sunny South Florida summer weekend.
0: What were the souls, Bill? 110. Got it. Okay.
1: Uh, It took off, um, and it crashed into the Everglades about 10 minutes into the flight as a result of a fire in the cargo bay because as a result of improperly stored chemical oxygen generator canisters. Those are the canisters that kind of, you know, when you're in flight, you know, you lose altitude or whatever, and the oxygen mass moved down or fall down. They're the canisters that create that oxygen kind of thing, and they get hot when they do that. And again, apparently there were a bunch of them stored together. They didn't have protective. um, They weren't stored properly. So when they all got together and they moved around when the when the plane started to uh, ascend um and then they got all hot kind of thing started a fire and blah blah blah. do you the remember the was...
0: aircraft type off do you i'm just i'm just curious uh, like it an like md80 or i uh, was 737
1: 737 i think uh i can find out a little bit the the, well, the plane struck the ground pretty much your head for it was a dc-9 i'm sorry okay dc nine thirty two. It struck the ground nearly vertical, went straight right in, the aircraft was destroyed on impact. There really were no large pieces of fuselage remaining. Uh, I remember seeing pretty much, you know, one landing gear and that was pretty much about the biggest piece of uh, the aircraft that I saw. Um, the recovery of the aircraft and the victims was really difficult because of the location of the craft. It, the nearest road of any kind was a quarter of a mile away from the crash scene. It was, uh, it's the crash scene itself was in a deep water swamp. It was in the Everglades. It, the the entire scene was entirely submerged in more than seven feet of water, and then followed by several feet of muck, and then um, you know, then then a bedrock, if you will. Sawgrass, alligators, aviation fuel—the risk of all kinds of bacteria infection from cuts plagued uh, all of our researchers in that recovery effort. So that was really pretty much a high-risk issue for them. Snakes? Uh, Not at that time. Alligators were the biggest risk at the time. Not to (laughs) mention mosquitoes, flies—you name it. It was clearly was uncomfortable thing.
0: And what was your role at this time? Were you Broward County?
1: No, Miami Dade. And I was uh assistant director. Okay. And as you mentioned that there was because so again here we are um you know it, it was a quiet Saturday afternoon and all of a sudden back in the day um there were very few cell phones and uh, I did not have a cell phone but I had a pager. And my pager kept going off and I started learning of this. And so I called my boss who was at the time, Chuck Lanza. Oh yeah. So he and I learned of this. And so he, he and I said, Hey, let's, let's, let's go and check on this and go out there. So we, we did. So our, our calm Saturday afternoon went from not from quiet to chaos pretty quickly although it was almost more than a half hour drive to get out there and then once we got out to the intersection of the the highway and the berm there was just really nowhere to go because there were so many vehicles out there and there was just nowhere to go you were pretty much on a berm and then it was everglades so you were out in the middle of nowhere And the problem was, was that there was no infrastructure whatsoever. Cell phones didn't work out there. Portable radios didn't work out there. Some vehicle radios worked out there because they had enough power to get back to the local area. But again, most radios didn't work. Um, So there was was a lot of difficulty in terms of, number one, learning whose jurisdiction it was, whether it was in Broward or Miami-Dade. But eventually we learned that it was in miami-dade county so miami-dade took command and um from there would, on would it,
0: that have been a uh, fire department who was incident in command by what agency it,
1: it, it started with fire because it was a it was you know it was a re, a response it was a response search and rescue and then ultimately it became once it was determined that there was no um you know, there were no survivors, then it kind of shifted to uh, more of a unified command, but it shifted primarily more to um, MDPD because then it was a, a, a scene, a, a homicide scene, I guess. And, but again, because MDPD did not have any of the the equipment to be able to, you know, boats, scuba divers, anything, um, it, uh, you know, it became more of a unified command, and in fact, it, it became such a unified command that twenty-seven agencies were ultimately involved in the in the response. So,
0: to me, that sounds like uh, a lot of three-letter feds were there. NTSB. Well, that's four letters, but probably had ATF, FBI. Was the assumption right. it was a, 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 an IED originally? No. But okay. there,
1: there was yeah. I think there was a little bit of assumption of that at first. Um, but again, quite honestly, there was very little. Um, there, it, it, there really wasn't much to. Uh, uh, there wasn't a lot of discussion in that, if I recall. It was more it definitely from our perspective. It was, what are we going to do? You know, we we weren't so much concerned about. The cause per se it was what we needed to do kind of thing so so the basically a bottom line was was our job was to recover the passengers and the plane and basically coordinate that over and that that process took many weeks um and again it was basically a matter of scavenging uh all you know, the, the underwater in the swamp, and you could not basically see much more than two inches in front of your mask. Basically, the we set up a base camp located on Highway 440 or 41, which is Tamami Trail, and then we we created a forward base of operations a half a mile up into the Everglades along this berm. This berm was wide enough for one vehicle to drive down it, more or less. Um. And then, um, and that that base of operations camp, if you that forward boo, was three hundred yards from the the crash site. We had a
0: uh, on set the berm. Up- That's just, so the boo is on the is on the is on the berm. Right. Right. Okay. So the
1: four. The so the the base camp was. The, the berm was a little bit wider, so we were actually able to to create, set up a landing zone and park some vehicles. And that's kind of where we set up basically a major or a little city. And but yet the forward boo was basically we've set up a dock and that's where we were offloading peak um, personnel to go out to the actual crash site. But it became a major logistical operation. We had to, you know, deal with Tyvek suits, waiters. We used forty-five hundred gallons of fuel a day, three thousand pounds of ice, drinks, um, food. We it cost us about three 000, or three hundred twenty-five thousand dollars a day in costs in today's dollars. That's probably about six hundred and thirty thousand um, dollars. And that went on for many weeks. So again, I can't remember what the total cost was, but you do the you can do the math. Of course, we had major transportation issues. Again, we had to do everything primarily by helicopters, airboats, air buses, which were big airboats that would carry personnel, flatboats, and temporary docks. There was very little vehicular traffic whatsoever. There were again, as I said, major communications issues. There was no telephone in, infrastructure out there. We had to have AT&T drop um, a, a line out to you know, our base camp. It took up several days for that to happen. There were no common frequencies back then. So even if radios did work, you know, we actually set up a repeat, we set up two repeaters we set up. We actually established an independent local base station, repeaters, and five new frequencies to deal with that. Because again, that just you know radios just were not working out there. And then, of course, back in that that day, satellite telephones as as standby, sorry, as primitive as they were, they um, um, were. We we used them to the degree we could. And we actually set up a cow as well back then, the like cellular on wheels.
0: So I'm I'm curious about the radios. I, I understand what you're saying. You set up a, a local radio network. Where did you get the radios? Was it a purchase? Did all the agencies? you know bring their toys uh to the to the playground and everybody would tweak their radios was a radio mechanics to to adjust all that it sounds like just communications had to had to be i mean you're over you're giving us an overview of major logistic operations so communications always being a failure in crisis i thought i'd ask about that
1: sure well again number one my media fire rescue had um, uh, its own communications division which was uh, a stellar division. They you you asked them to set up a, a wire and two cans between you know two places and they could make it work. Um they were phenomenal people. Um and they were, I mean Dade Fire Rescue at the time had one of the premier uh USAR teams. They, you know, one of the few USAR teams that was going anywhere. So they had they had a cache Uh, And the county was working on interoperable communications, probably before most people were. So there was, there were ways that they could communicate. um, And, you know, they had a fair amount of, uh, they had a fair amount of resources and infrastructure already in place. But again, these guys were phenomenal uh, in terms of being able to, again, string a wire between two fire, literally between two fire trucks with raised ladders and, and make some kind of level of communications and we learned that kind of coat hanger duct tape and a little bit of copper wire from hurricane andrew
0: yeah i was going to say earlier when you were going through your 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 uh, history that you lost uh, you that you didn't participate in hurricane andrew it is it's really interesting how how small our industry can be you talked about the Miami-Dade USAR team I worked with Carlos Castillo in the early days of the USAR program because I was on the original um, USAR team in New York City building help building out the medical component of that and we were actually in we were it was nascent it was still under development and FEMA launched us uh, to Andrew. We packed up uh, medical equipment. We were on the way to Kennedy Airport uh, with a team of EMS uh, docs and nurses, and we were canceled. But uh, the team wasn't, uh, that was our part of it. Uh, you know, there was a fire uh, and you have NYP, fire rescue and NYPD emergency service component that was also on the way. But it, it's just uh, it's it's a t- it is a, a tiny little world when oh, you think oh. about it. Wow, this sounds like uh, quite an, quite an incident. Um...
1: Yeah, we essentially built a small city with a daily population of about two to three hundred people out on a berm in the middle of the Everglades overnight, and we maintained it for more than a month. So we did food, water, power, waste, waste disposal infrastructure, communication, health care, security, and governance, you know, overnight. And if you can think about this back in 1996, this was pre-NIMS, pre, you know, all that stuff. So we kind of, you know, and like I said, we had to, because of the uniqueness of this situation, we had to write portions of the book while we were responding and. and and unfortunately, I don't think we wrote enough of it down. Um, but, uh, you know, it was, that's what made this, I think, this this event so phenomenal. Um, I'm sorry that nobody lived. Um, I'm sorry that all, you know, there were 110 fatalities. Um, but I think um, in light of it, that, that, that the legacy of this incident was the extraordinary, lessons that were learned from this and that I think have led to again the the successes of NIMS and all those other kinds of things because I think a lot went right in this in this incident and I think that we learned particularly that ICS works because that's we were truly following ICS the fire department took the lead on Again, back in 1996, some of the players, particularly law enforcement and the feds, were not very happy about it, but we played, and they tried to play along with it, and they I think they saw value in it.
0: You know, you you did say NIMS wasn't around yet, but you're right to call out ICS as having been a model that had been around at that point. Uh, Well, since 1970, that was when the FireScope program in California produced the Incident Command System, and we were using it uh, in New York. Uh, We were developing programs in the early 90s that are, you know, of course, full-blown now. Another comment I'd like to make is that uh, you said 1996, right? So this was not a good year for aviation because just two months later, TWA 800 goes down also in the water, uh, um, on the North shore of long Island. I'm sorry. South shore of long Island off the Mariches and, uh, New York city OEM being the, uh, you know, the EM agency for the, where the, where the aircraft launched from was had a, had a role in that, um, i'll uh, I'll have uh, a guest on in the coming weeks who was the incident commander for t w eight hundred and I have a feeling we'll hear similar uh stories uh to what you to what you're telling because you think about a deep water recovery operation and uh the need for all those multiple agencies unified command you know using the coast guard station as a as a command post
1: yeah so cool. so what did I learn and kind of what went wrong um or I guess yeah. Rather than being negative about it, I say, what did I learn?
0: Oh, it because, sounds like there was too much positive.
1: Yeah. Well, there was a again, like I said, I think there was a lot of positive, and I don't want to by any means um, denigrate any of that. But I think there were some some good lessons to learn, and I think, um, and and I'll get into a few of my aphorisms, um, which I think is uh, very interesting. But but before I do that, um, I think while NTSB oversaw the crash investigation. And again, I highlight that word investigation. And rightfully so, many of the components of the recovery process, they were not in charge of the local response. Yet they often assumed command of local issues. And some of those decisions cost us a lot of money. And I learned that disasters are local. And that's where I first learned that disasters are local and I'll never forget that. And I learned never to give up control. And um, I learned because Miami-Dade received little reimbursement for the millions of dollars that we spent on recovery efforts. And again, if you give up control, uh, it's going to cost you and it's going to haunt you for the rest of your life. So in from here on, from that end day on, I, or that incident on, I never allowed, um, with, whether they come in and flash their badge and their fancy this and fancy that disasters are local and we have to make sure that we don't, you know, allow, Again, we understand the investigation has to take place, but they but, you know, feds, state, whoever it is that's in charge cannot uh, usurp the local response. So I learned that lesson.
0: I was uh, thinking of finances before and I didn't want to bring it up because I didn't want to I didn't want that to appear as a priority. But this is not the kind of disaster that uh, a government can seek remuneration for through uh stafford act processes it's just not going to happen i i couldn't see uh i i couldn't see e- even if it passes the you know the federalist structure and, and the county re- declares and makes a request and the governor says ah eh, we'll we'll go for it I I couldn't see FEMA and the White House approving a disaster for this. So I can imagine that I'm assuming I'm correct. And you would just, you just ate, ate all the costs. Uh, Small airline didn't have any money to really contribute. I'm sure.
1: I think there was, yeah, I think there was a little bit of money that I think we may have gotten a small congressional because you're right. It was not a Stafford Act. I think we did get a bit of a congressional um, uh, handout, if you will, your earmark, if you will. But it was definitely nowhere near the the actual costs that we had. So the, the local taxpayers ate most of this. And the problem is, is that when when NTSB wanted to speed up the process and cut corners and things like that, that, you know, by using bigger equipment, faster equipment, or maybe more people what or whatnot um you know that those are those are expensive that's costly kind of thing and in some cases it could could put people at risk and again the whole issue is is that that's not what their interest is their interest is not in local issues their interest is in is very myopic and we can't forget that so And speaking of which, the another lesson I learned was that the recovery process was exceedingly tedious and slow, uh, and especially agonizing for the family members. So I really learned back in 1996 the significance of the need for compassionate family assistance and care. This was way before the Pulse nightclub and things like that. Um, But is you know so I think uh, that helped in my development of my local plans for family assistance center care and things like that so i think again that was as truly again this is this you know as we started out this whole conversation emergency management's about people um i think the event would have surely benefited from interoperable communications equipment Uh, setting up that independent communication system in the middle of nowhere nowhere was very labor intensive. It was very tedious. And of course, it was costly. I think uh, another thing that I learned was that the event surely would have benefited from a better understanding of ICS. Clearly, the non-fire agencies and volunteer agencies and and whatnot had no idea what in in unity of command meant or what incident objectives were, et cetera, et cetera. We did have daily huddles that were very helpful in communicating our priorities and goals. But despite that, um, I think there was still some uh, learning, there was a definite learning curve there. So I think those were my major um, uh, learning points or takeaways, I think, from that incident.
0: You know, it's interesting how as I speak to senior emergency managers such as yourself, there are, um, uh, shall we say, uh, collateral experiences. So I was uh, in the Family Assistance Center for TWA 800, and two months later, uh, it was a bad year for aviation. I was in the Family Assistance Center for Swiss Air 111. Swiss Air 111 also went down in the Atlantic Ocean, but farther out than Long Island. But, uh, you know, we had the obligation to take care of the passengers there, uh, family members, rather. Uh, After that, I was fortunate enough to sit on an NTSB working group that uh, ultimately developed the disaster family assistance plan that led to the NTSB. Disaster family assistance legislation that that exists into today. So, uh, I'm not surprised to hear you say those things. And uh, I'm, um, all these years later, um, I'm honored to have the experience to serve the families and 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 support them. I mean, it's not a me situation. We had a whole team there doing things. Uh, it was, uh, we had police agencies there. Uh, TW800, i 111 Port Authority Police. Uh, was uh lead agency because, you know, it was at their property. We supported kind of like a unified command as well, but I get it. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about logistics before we start wrapping up. Um, you've covered so much ground here and, and have really painted a Fantastic picture of this incident. I mean, in my mind's eye, I can see what's going on in the berm. I can see the boat launch that you built. I can see the helipad because I was in a situation where we built a helipad and I was the St. Louis encephalitis or what ultimately became the West Nile fever crisis. And CDC had us. De- deploying uh, insecticide across the marsh areas of new york city well we had the new york city dot build a helipad we we took down some marsh and we built a helipad and we had helicopters coming in and out and we had guys in hazmat suits loading malathion on helicopters this is crazy stuff if you think about the things uh, the things that we've done but on the logistics side definitely did you have um, contracts in place? Did did we were you just have was somebody just on the phone buying things? It doesn't sound like I. It, it sounds like you had unanticipated needs, so you really wouldn't have contracts for the things that you were using. But being so, hurricane focused uh, in Florida right. now, you have a, a an, an air disaster in probably one of the worst possible environments.
1: So the answer is no. Not really. I mean, we did have some contracts, of course, we had contracts for Tyvek suits, but not hundreds of Tyvek suits. I mean, we, we were part of the fire department at the time. So yeah. So in cases like, for example, Tyvek suits, we were able to just, you know, expand that contract. But um, for example, the we put a doc out. At the a floating dock out at the actual crash site, so that the that that's how we would deploy the divers. And um we did not have, for example, a contract for swimming pool ladders. And so right. we had to figure out how the heck we we're gonna get swimming pool ladders because that's how the divers were going to get in and out of the
0: water up
1: onto that dock kind of thing so those were the kind of the challenges that um again in 1996 granted the the contracting wasn't quite as tight as it was now today but there was again some of those issues that we just just again wrote the book on
0: so coming full circle in my mind, that's pure crisis management because incident command provides you with a structure and processes. And then you walk up to the edge of the process and you have a thing that you need to do and you have to get it done. And that's always been the lesson learned for me. I've been in situations where organizations spend a lot of time organizing and never really getting to the point I'm, I'm thinking of exercise scenarios where they get to the point where they're doing something. Well, you're you're expressing that right now. We used ICS. you're promoting the use of ICS, but it stops at the let's get it done stuff. Somebody had to buy swimming pool ladders and that's probably I'm thinking it's the logistics section in a pure ICS structure in the procurement uh, group, and and that's it. And somebody's funding it. That's the finance guy on the other chart on the other side of the chart. So it works. But it, crisis management is also about identifying a need and getting it done. And it sounds like you did there. I, I you should be proud of that. Yeah, yeah we got, you, a, you did we it got a
1: again back in 1996. We got a right. copier and photocopy paper out on that berm for several weeks again, to copy off IAPs and all this other kind of good stuff. And again, back in 1996, they did not have, you know, Xerox did not have photocopy delivery kind of systems for out in the middle of nowhere
0: right right and right and we didn't have smartphones if right. you had if you had a phone it it may have weighed four pounds and was in, either in a bag or it was the first generation uh those flip phones which was analog digital cell technology was just uh emerging uh i i think if anything like you know have today you have like uh 4g that was 1g and i remember 2g if it was even a because it was it was analog, so I, I could imagine the the communications challenges. So I, I have four major observations that I'm uh, I, I captured from what you've discussing that I want to summarize for the folks. One is um, the use of incident command. Use of incident command structure and planning uh, definitely worked well for this incident. So let's just say an incident command structure. At some point, evolved from single command to unified command. There were a lot of agencies in it, but it sounds like you all made it work. And then you use at the very least uh, an IAP structure to develop uh, operational uh, uh, objectives for operational periods based on what needed to. Here I go again. Get stuff done, and that's and that and that's valuable. Logistics, major logistics operation. You know, we say we're people first, and in order to of course, this was not necessarily people first because it was a mass fatality operation, but it was a mass recovery. But in any disaster, hurricane in particular, um, logistics is people first because you have to be able to, once once the people are evacuated and uh, we've made all the rescues, people need to be cared for. Human mass care situation requires logistics, and that's everything from food to water to cots to sanitation to Everything that goes along with that, and 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 that was job number two, and then I have uh, uh, interoperable communications, and uh, the today uh, I'd like to think communications w- would be a little better. Cellular technology is a little bit better, although I drove across seventy five to Naples uh, not too long ago, and there are some dead spots out there in the Everglades, uh, and uh, I I, I, ca- I can't imagine that would be. I, I can imagine it would be a little different, but at the same time, it would still have some, some communication challenges and family assistance. And for emergency managers that aren't familiar with family assistance, do a little Google search, find out the NTSB program, look at the legislation because uh, a mass fatality event can occur in your community at a moment's notice. It, it could just be uh, a, a train accident, aircraft accident, bus accident, uh, God forbid, active shooter. I mean, the things that we deal with, the risks and tragedies that we deal with. Um, what an incredible episode, Bill! Thank you so much for sharing that with us. I am, I'm so glad to know you personally and, and as a friend uh, because we 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 share a lot. But you, this experience and your other experiences in Florida, well, it really demonstrates that Florida is a, a state that that really does have uh, its risks in in different corners.
1: Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Someday i'll i I as a result of this as as well as several other incidents, I developed a a, a list of what I call bills twenty four aphorisms for Emergency management. And I think we went over some of them, but you know like, for example, that cell phones are of little value in the first twenty four hours of a disaster, and there's no such thing as a small disaster, and small disasters will ultimately look like big ones and and so on. But I would love to go and and uh, come and talk to you. I could probably talk to you for hours about just my aphorisms because uh, I wrote them back in 2002, but um, I, I, I've learned still that uh, nearly all are true um but as like i said that's probably a whole yeah. other podcast
0: i think another episode is uh, is going to have to get scheduled and and we'll certainly we'll certainly do that yeah. i would love to have you on again and i look forward to seeing you around the county and uh and at the next uh, emergency management event i'm going to close by saying i want to thank bill for uh, an, an extraordinary discussion today uh the value jet accident uh was very visible back in the in the day that was a bad year for aviation and it started with with value jet and as a new yorker i i remember the images on on the on the nightly news but uh i didn't nor would we have the lacking social media and connectivity today i know bill of of social media and we we would probably know a little more because they're sharing on linkedin and facebook and different uh, parts Uh, of Twitter. So thank you again, Bill, for joining Five Minutes to Chaos and for sharing uh, your career experience and your crisis management story. Five Minutes to Chaos drops weekly on Thursdays. Please follow us or like us on your favorite platform and set it to alert so you know when an episode drops. I welcome your comments or questions, which can be submitted in the comments area of the show or directed to me on LinkedIn. Until next time, embrace the chaos and that brings us to the end of this episode of five minutes to chaos we hope you enjoy exploring the many facets of the incident we discussed today and gained some new insights and perspectives along the way remember confronting chaos is not something to be feared or avoided It is a central crisis management role that we can learn to embrace and navigate with robust leadership and personal resilience. By embracing chaos, we can tap into our creative potential, adapt to situations more easily, and find a way to overcome the challenges of complex emergencies. I'd like to thank our guests and experts who shared their insights with us today, and to our listeners, thank you for joining us. We hope you found value in today's episode and invite you to continue exploring the many aspects of complex crisis management. Don't forget to subscribe to 5 Minutes to Chaos for more thought-provoking conversations and insights. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review or sharing it with a friend and colleague. Until next time, embrace the chaos.